Anybody know how many bowl games there are? 21 is too low. 33 is too low. 64 bowl games. No, there's 34. I'm sorry. 34, not 64. There's 68 teams that play. I was thinking, because there's only 120 teams in, in Division One in the, in the FBS. Um, so half the teams get to go to a bowl game. Because my daughter said, Daddy, does everybody get to play in a bowl game? Because they just, they just last forever. There's 34 bowl games. There's too many bowl games. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that kind of sticks out when you start watching bowl games is um, the number of penalty, penalty flags that are thrown. You seen that? Guys hadn't played in sometimes six weeks when they get to a bowl game. And so they're out of the habit and they're out of practicing the rules. And so they have a lot of issues with the game. And so sometimes the games are so slow. And they actually have a stat that they put up on the screen now to count how many flags they've had, how many penalty yards. And, and part of the problem, I think, is they're just not in practice. They don't know the rules. And we're going to talk about the rules of life today. Now, some folks are just, they don't understand the rules of life. They're just suckers for the sensational. How many of you, um, when you stand at the, the checkout line, you read those sensational headlines? How many of you do that? I'm struggling with this. I'm going to get it. Yeah, okay. And, and some of them, do you ever just shake your head? I have some headlines. I want you to see if you would buy these headlines or not. Research scientists have learned dinosaurs honked like Buicks. I mean, if you've heard of Buick, you know what that is? Some of you are like, I don't know what that is. Okay. I like this one. Mom-to-be on chicken-only diet lays a huge egg. I like the cartoon depictions they have, you know, big old egg. Okay. World War II bomber found on the moon. I like this one. Monster in Loch Ness eats boat full of tourists. Did y'all hear about that one? I'm not even going to ask you if you believed it was true. Um, Bigfoot adopts conjoined twins. And then this one. Adam and Eve's bones found in Asia. Eve was a space alien. Y'all believe those? Now, here's the thing that kind of blows my mind. Some people will believe almost anything except when it comes to God. Tell the average human there are 300 billion stars and they'll believe you. Tell a man that a park bench has wet paint on it and he'll have to touch it just to make sure. Right? Human beings are... Always interesting, but they're not always charming. Would you agree with that? Um, people, uh, you can't get along with them, but we really can't do life without them, right? So today what we're going to do is we're going to try to figure out how to improve our relationships. And the way we're going to do that is by discovering some rules that apply to life. All right, so there are three rules to win in 2010. That originally was going to be my sermon title until my wife said, that is stupid. How to win in 2010. Actually, she didn't say it like that. I said, here's the sermon title. She goes, really? 
And I said, well, I'm changing it. No, no, I'm changing it. She said, you got to tell everybody that you were going to call. My Baptist, way back there, just reached up and grabbed me. Um, how to win in 2010. I said, Brother Ken, just, you know, way back when, Brother Ken kind of stuck with me. So we changed it to winning the game. Well, here's the first rule if you're going to win the game of life. Attitude determines outcome. Attitude determines outcome. I, uh, I saw this book and I just had to get it. There's, it's called Have a New Husband by Friday. How many of you ladies want this book? Right? And, and it says how to change his attitude. And your husbands need an attitude change? Behavior and communication in five days. And it actually goes through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. There's a book out uh, by the same Kevin Lehman, Dr. Kevin Lehman. It's How to Have a New Kid by Friday. And I'm going to read that one as well. I'll let you know what we find out about that. I, I wonder. I've not heard that one. So, ladies, you're off the hook at least until the men of New Life get together and, and collaborate. And uh, after we read these books, we'll, uh, we'll write our own book, How to Have a New Wife by Friday. Well, this means the primary um, force that determines whether your life is successful or you fail is your attitude. So here's the question I want you to ask today. Ask yourself this question to determine what your attitude is like. Do you feel that your world is treating you well? Gut level reaction. If you say, no then more than likely you have a negative attitude. And see, have you ever realized that, that we tend to get back whatever attitude we project? If you go out and... Do you feel that your world is treating you well? Gut-level reaction. If you say, no, then more than likely you have a negative attitude. And see, have you ever realized that, that we tend to get back whatever attitude we project, if you feel that your world is treating you well, gut-level reaction, if you say no, then more than likely you have a negative attitude. And see, have you ever realized that, that we tend to get back whatever attitude we project? If you go out into a canyon and you yell out, I love you, what's the message that comes back? I love you. If you go out to that same canyon and you say, I hate your guts, what is the message that comes back? I hate your guts. So it's like an echo. If you feel so-so about your world, the response from the world will probably be average. If you feel badly about your world, you will probably have some negative feedback from your world. Now, I want to show you some, some pictures, and we're going to kind of do this association thing. When you see this first picture, I want you to tell me what attitude comes to mind. Ready? Here it is. Who is that? Eeyore. Is Eeyore known as a sunshine of light in a dark and dreary world? What is he known for? He pretty much has the, the little rain cloud above him. Oh, no, everything's wrong. Do you like hanging out with Eeyore? No, he's a donkey. Yeah, but he's got a bad attitude. You just told me that you needed a good attitude if you were going to date a boy. She just told me that. You got to be careful what you tell me right before church. Now, here's the next picture. Tell me about attitude. Who is it? Tigger. 
Does he have a good attitude or a bad attitude? Good attitude. Now, sometimes to a fault, right? Sometimes he gets on your nerves. But which one would you rather hang out with? Tigger or uh, not, Tigger or uh, Eeyore? Sorry to say poo. <laughs> Tigger. He's fun. He's alive. He always has a good attitude. If he were a real person, I bet mostly good things would happen to him because he has a generally good outlook on life. And even if bad things happen to him, he tends to find the good in those bad situations. So you'd probably rather hang out with Tigger. Now, I'm going to play you some clips of songs and just gut level reaction. This is just, you know, just a title, just a few seconds. I want you to see if these songs reflect your attitude towards life. All right. Ready? First one. Raindrops are falling on my head And just like the guy's feet are too big for Now, how many of you feel bed. like raindrops are always falling? Like, you're, like, I'm not saying anything negative in front of you, dude. Right? Okay, second song. More than this, I did it my how many of you are rugged individualists and regardless of what the man or anyone else says, I did it my way. Let me see your hands. I, I, Steve was already. OK. All right. All right. I think a lot of you have this next one. Take this job and show. I ain't working here no more. Maybe, maybe, I'm just suggesting, maybe we should have this next attitude a little more often. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. Now, which of those attitudes is generally going to be the most helpful for you in your day-to-day -day life? The last one. That's from the musical Oklahoma, by the way. And somebody said, that sounds really Baptist. And, and it does, but that's not the point. The point is he's choosing an attitude. How many of you usually say, oh, good morning, Lord? How many of you say that when you wake up in the morning? How many of you say, good Lord, it's morning? <laughs> right? I think more of you do that. And that tends to... Uh, impact our attitude throughout the day, right? Well, here's what I want you to get. Galatians 6, 7. Here's kind of the, the key verse. You will always harvest what you plant. If you sow seeds of negativity in your life, you're going to get seeds of negativity back. If you sow generally positive seeds in your life, you're going to get positive seeds back. You are going to harvest whatever it is that you put into life. Now, it would be impossible to estimate the number of jobs which have been lost because of a poor attitude. The number of promotions missed. The number of sales not made. And sadly, the number of marriages ruined by a sorry attitude. The key to a, a positive attitude is to know the difference between a problem and a fact of life. So we're going to practice. You tell me if this is a problem or a fact of life. Debt. Somebody's like, that's a fact in my life. <laughs> no. Debt is a problem that can be solved. It's not a fact of life unless you continue to pile up debt. If you spend more than you make and you do that over a lot of years, you're dumb. 
right? I mean, we're the only nation in the world that thinks we should be able to get more than what we can afford every day. The height, your height in life, your, your, your physical stature, is that a problem or a fact of life? It's a fact of life. Now, my shape is a problem, but my height is a fact of life. All right, let me give another one. You're a, a poor marriage. Is that a fact of life? Be careful before you answer. Or is it a problem? It's a problem. Um, your job. It's a problem. Your family. Both. Right? Because if you have four family relationships, then that's a problem that can be worked on. But you don't get to choose your family. Right? You do get to choose your spiritual family. Praise God. But if you want to know the most jacked up spiritual family in town, it's here. So if you're choosing to come here, just know you, we, we're warts and all. We're weird. But we're real about being weird. We're positive about being weird. Now, the key is figuring out the difference between a problem and a fact of life. A fact of life is something that has to be accepted. So here's what you got to understand. Failing at life is an inside job. Nobody makes you fail. You choose to do it. But success in life is also an inside job. The Bible says that if you are a Christ follower, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. He changes you from the inside out. And the Bible also tells us that when we're followers of Christ, when we're his child, we can have the mind of Christ if we're plugged into Christ. So it doesn't always have to be like this. You can't let the bad stuff that happens on the outside of you get inside of you. Barbara Johnson is, is a writer, and she's really a funny lady. You've probably seen some of her books around. If you've been in any Christian bookstore, she's going to be in there. This is from Stick a Geranium in Your Hat and Be Happy. This is, this is her, uh, an excerpt from that book. After I spoke at a women's retreat recently, a darling gal rushed up to me saying, Oh, Barb, you are just so lucky. Listen to what she says. You have come through all the trials with so much joy and victory. And, and Barbara says, I laughed and I told the lady, I don't believe there's any such thing as luck for a Christian. She says, look at it this way. One, out of, one family out of 500,000 lost a son in Vietnam. She said, we were one of those families. One family out of every 800 has a child killed by a drunk driver. We're one of those families. Statistics say that one family out of every 10 will have a homosexual child. We know all about that. She says, and recently I became part of another set of statistics, namely that one out of every 40 women over middle age, uh, uh, every 40 women over middle age, one will develop on uh, adult onset diabetes. She said, this is something brand new in my life. Although it's considered milder than juvenile onset, it carries with it all the life-threatening complications. She said, I said a lot more, but the main thrust was that I chose to look at what seemed good to me rather than to anticipate all the gruesome complications that can happen at some point. All right, here's what I want you to hear. Here's the last thing she said to the lady. We are all going to have pain, but misery is optional. We're all going to have pain. Misery is optional. You choose misery. You can't control the length of your life, but you can control whether you have a deep and meaningful and satisfying life. You can't control the shape of your face, but you can control its expression. 
I have seen this put into play many times with my children. I will hear them in another room. They're having all kinds of conflict. Their faces are not pleasant. When I walk in the room, I get one of two expressions immediately. It's either or it's hi, daddy. See, they couldn't control necessarily all the circumstances, but they could control their faces. It makes a difference who is watching, right? So you can control the way you react to life. That's that's the whole thing. Why worry about things you can't control when you can keep busy controlling the things that depend on you? So that's rule number one. Rule number two is failure doesn't have to be final. What that means is learn from your mistakes. Don't wallow in self-pity. Get up and move on. Every week, you see people on this stage who have colossal failures in their past. That's key. You want me to interview you? All right, there's Donald. Yeah, Nathan's like, okay, if i got to say it, i got to say it. Um, probably not many of you know that I was almost fired from one of the jobs that we had several years ago as, as a minister. Um, we went through tremendous struggles starting this church because we didn't have a clue how to start a church. We just called up our friends and said, hey, we're starting a church. And 22 of them showed up the first week, and I think we had 15 the second week. That's the, that's the wrong way to go. Another two weeks, and we would have had none except my family. Um, we've, we interviewed Wes and Jen on our fourth anniversary. Wes is our worship leader up here. And they had racked up $30,000 of unsecured debt. That means credit card debt. And finally they said, uh, enough is enough. And so they decided that they were going to get out of debt. They allowed their failures to define them. They could wallow. Get them all. Drew's not even here today. Drew will tell you, every person up here has major failures in their past. Every person who works in the children's area back there has major failures in their past. But here's the thing I love about our church. People who step up and serve refuse to allow their failures to define them. Drew's not even here today. Drew will tell you, every person up here has major failures in their past. Every person who works in the children's area back there has major failures in their past. But here's the thing I love about our church. People who step up and serve refuse to allow their failures to define them. They could wallow in every person who works in the children's area back there has major failures in their past. But here's the thing I love about our church. People who step up and serve refuse to allow their failures to define them. They could wallow. But here's the thing I love about our church. People who step up and serve refuse to allow their failures to define them. The area back there has major failures in their past. But here's the thing I love about our church. People who step up and serve refuse to allow their failures to define them. They could wallow in self-pity, but they don't. As long as we have breast was on trial, he was about to be crucified, and somehow Peter is in, in the vicinity so that Jesus turns and looks him in the eye. And the look of the Savior pierced through his heart. And look what it says. He left the courtyard crying bitterly because he had failed. 
accomplish. He underestimated how rough following Christ was going to be. And he overestimated his ear pierced through his heart. And look what it says. He left the courtyard crying bitterly because he had failed. He was foolish. He underestimated how rough following Christ was going to be. And he overestimated his own devotion. Peter stands up and gives the very first sermon that's ever been preached from the Christian church in Jerusalem, the place where they had killed Jesus. And he said, this Jesus whom you have crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And 3,000 people joined the church that day. That's pretty impressive. See, we fail just like Peter does, but too many times we don't accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers and we don't allow him to do some amazing things in our life. Now, we can choose to be like Peter before the rooster crowed or we can be like Peter on the day that he preached, the day of Pentecost. And you tell me, for the rest of his life, was there ever a man like Peter, who every day when the sun came up and he heard the rooster crow, he was reminded of God's great mercy. Because when that rooster crowed, he remembered his failure. But he also remembered God restored him and gave him a place of service far beyond his wildest imaginations. Let's look at failure number two. His name was Judas. You heard of Judas? I know you have. Judas was the treasurer for Jesus. Generally, would you, would you want a trustworthy person to be treasurer? An honest person, someone who has integrity. If you have a business, yes. And there's no way that anyone other than Jesus suspected that Judas was the betrayer. Now, not long before Jesus was going to be crucified, in fact, just, just that last week of his life, Jesus was at a place and a woman comes and she... She busts a jar of perfume and begins to anoint Jesus with it. And the Bible tells us that that perfume was worth 300 days wages. About a year's worth of wages. And, and Judas and the followers um, said to Jesus, this is a waste. And here's what he said. This perfume could have been sold and given to the poor. And Jesus said, well, this lady understands that, see, he had all these followers, but this lady is the only one who understood. Jesus predicted he was going to die many times. And this lady was preparing him for burial while he was still alive. His disciples said, this is a waste. And I want you to remember that word waste. We're going to come back to it in just a second. And it was at this moment when Jesus says, no, don't, don't, don't be mad at her. Look what happens. Look what Judas decides at this moment. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priest and asked, How much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? That was the moment he said, I'm done with this Jesus. I'm going to turn him over. And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. Now, I left out verse 14. I should put it in there. He goes back to those leading priests and he says, I have betrayed an innocent man. And they said, So what? That's not our problem. That's your problem. And then look at verse 16. Oh, sorry, I was the wrong one. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the other leaders. Then Judas threw the money onto the floor of the temple and went out and hanged himself. Hmm. Judas compounded one mistake with the other. And really, that could be what was etched on our gravestones. He was one mistake after another. Right? She just kept making mistakes over and over and over again. 
And um, have you ever thought about how close Judas was to forgiveness? He hanged himself on Friday. When was Jesus raised from the tomb? Sunday. He was within 48 hours of being forgiven. But he never got that same chance. He would have given, been given the same deal that Peter got, but he took matters into his own hands. And it's really ironic that Judas was, what he called the perfume was a waste. Because Jesus gave Judas the name. He said, son of perdition. Called him the son of perdition. Perdition literally means waste. Jesus looked at Judas's life and he said, you're the child. You're the offspring of waste. Now, did he call him that because he betrayed him? No. Peter betrayed him. Peter was never called the offspring of waste. Peter held on and was forgiven. And that's the difference. Judas took matters into his own hands, ended his life before he ever experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. And, and see, I guess that could be the, the, the thing for, for Peter and, and, and Judas. We all have pain. Misery is optional. Judas chose misery. Peter chose to come back to Christ and be forgiven. I came across a, a book years ago um, by Portia Nelson. Actually, it's, it's uh, called Autobiography and Five Short Chapters. And it explains this idea of a failure freeway because too many times we get on the failure freeway and we never take the exit to get off the failure freeway. Here's what she says. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to get out. If you those of you in celebrate recovery, you'll you'll identify with this. You understand this and you see this in other people who desperately need celebrate recovery. Chapter two. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. Do you sense a pattern here? There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. That's key. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Wisdom is when you get to chapter 5. I walk down another street. <laughs> you know, we talk about this all the time, but Insanity is trying the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result. Sometimes you have to choose new friends. Sometimes you have to choose a new city. Sometimes you have to choose a new church. Sometimes you have to choose new deacons. Sorry, I just that's not in there. I just threw that in to see if you're paying attention. No matter how difficult you're... Your problems are the key to overcoming them does not lie in changing your circumstances. It's in changing who you're depending on. Are you dependent on yourself? Are you dependent on family members? They're not God. You've got to depend on God and he changes you from the inside out. The Bible is just filled with stories of real people who messed up royally. Samson, David, Elijah, Peter, John, Paul. They all have colossal failures in their past. The only people who were ever called 
offspring of waste are the folks who didn't come to Christ and allow him to pick them up, pick up the pieces and put them back together. Are you going to be called the offspring of waste? Is, is that your goal in life? Is to waste this life that God's given you so that when he sees you, he says, son or daughter of perdition? I don't think so. I don't think you'd be here if that was you. So let's figure out how to get off of this failure freeway. Third rule is let's live life on purpose. Most people live their lives at one of three levels. The first level is called the survival level. These people exist. They just survive from paycheck to paycheck, one day to another. They're controlled by their circumstances. They live for the weekend. Everybody's working for the weekend. Woo! And then they they feel bad when they got to go back to work. That's survival mode. A step up is the success level. Now, when I read these stories about these folks that we help through uh, World Vision, kid gets a goat and he thinks it's the greatest gift he's ever gotten in his life. A village gets a fishing pond. They go in, dig the pond, stock it with fish, teach them how to fish, fill it with tilapia because tilapia grow very quickly and they're a good eating fish. They're very nutritious and they think they are rich. Most of us have a mode of transportation. Most of us have more than one pair of clothes. Most of us have shoes. Most of us have a place to go that has central heat and air, that has doors that work, that have windows that are in the windows, not just an opening. And you ask some of these people in these third world countries if they would trade with you in a heartbeat. They'd say, those people are rich. Now, most of us don't feel rich, and I I understand that. But compared to the rest of the world, we are rich. And what I want you to realize is success, especially in America, does not equal significance. Success does not equal satisfaction of the soul. If it did, why, why are so many celebrities divorcing, turning to drugs, alcohol? Why are they committing adultery? Why are celebrities and politicians committing suicide if, if success is all it's cracked up to be? Success isn't where it's at. There's a third level that we need to get to, and that's the uh, significance level. How do you get there? How do you bec- get to the significance level? Well, you've got to learn three things. First of all, you've got you to understand why you're on the planet. You've got to understand... Um, the meaning of life. You're not some primordial soup that just happened to get shot by a bolt of lightning and then you came to life and started multiplying. You realize that there is a creator and you matter to him. See, isn't it cool to have someone love you? Regardless. I remember when Janie chose me those pretty blue eyes, I was like, sweet. Someone likes me and she's good looking. It was cool to have someone love me. Your creator loves you more than anything. And he wants the best for you. 
And then the third thing you learn that gives you significance is you learn that there's a reason you're on the planet. God put you here. And when you function the way God created you to function, there is no satisfaction like that. Now, I want you to look at a couple of verses that talk about how much your creator loves you. Isaiah 44, 2 says, God says, I am your creator. You were in my care even before you were born. So God was caring for you while he was thinking you up in his mind. That's pretty significant. Psalm 139.16, David is talking to God and he says, You, God, scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. So God has been thinking about you and keeping tabs on you before you were even a twinkle in your daddy's eye. Do you matter to God? Yes. No one pays attention to someone who does not matter to them. Do you know the opposite of love is not hate? The opposite of love is indifference. And your creator is not indifferent towards you. Your creator is pursuing you. And he wants 2010 to be better than 2009. Um, Les Miserables, I've seen the movie. I haven't seen the, the musical. Jean Valjean is the main character in, that, uh, in the movie. He said this, It is nothing to die. It's an awful thing never to have lived. My greatest fear is that a lot of you are never going to live. You're just going to exist on the planet until your clock expires. We're going to dig a hole in the ground. We're going to stuff you in it. And we're going to read your headstone that says, one mistake after another after another. They wasted their life. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. If you want your life in 2010 to be different than it was in 2009, would you consider praying this prayer? I'll say a sentence, and if, if you feel like you want to say that to your God, you just say it silently in your mind. Dear God, I realize if it weren't for you, I wouldn't even be alive. But because you made me, you must have a reason for my existence. I admit that I focused on my plans, not your plans. But I want to know the reason you put me here. And I want you to show me how to live a life of meaning. Thank you that you cared for me even when I didn't know you or care about you. I want to start this new year by getting to know you better. So as best I understand... Jesus Christ, I invite you into my life. Help me understand the life you have for me better. And I want to take that first step today. In your name I pray. Amen.